0: Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts, Emma and Jack. And welcome back to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. Quick note before we begin. Have you ever had one of those days for just everything goes wrong? Well, that was today for me. So funny little story. We actually started recording this episode earlier, but we had a plethora of problems between background noise and microphone issues and having to continuously get up and it was just an unsalvageable episode so this is our second (laughs) take and we are hoping that we remembered everything that we wanted to say earlier uh if we don't or if we miss something please sound off in the comments just a little note ahead of time but here we are let's get into it today we are covering alfred hitchcock's scandalous film rope And this and Strangers on a Train were listener-requested movies, and we decided to poll between them on Instagram and Twitter, and the people have spoken, and they wanted us to cover Rope. So we are definitely hopeful to cover Strangers on a Train in the future, but for today, we are covering this sordid tale. So we are joined again by Isabella, my sister, and another Gen Z guest, Ben! Benjamin, how are you doing? And tell us a little bit about your experience with classic films, old movies.
1: Um, I haven't seen many of them, is how I would describe my experience. I guess the one category I've seen a lot of is old Westerns. My dad watched a lot of Westerns. So I'm familiar with that category. But in general, I haven't seen a whole lot of movies. I just wasn't really from a movie family. Like, I feel like you guys were. We mostly watched tv shows growing up which i don't know if most people fall into one of the two categories but I <laughs> do
0: for sure. now i do think it's interesting because you're a fan of rear window am i correct
1: i am i saw that recently and i did really enjoy it now i'm for a little i was familiar with it because of the tv show psych i don't know if you guys watch that show, it was pretty popular. It was like a detective show, but there are a lot of. There's an episode that has a lot of homages to Alfred Hitchcock movies. So that was kind of my first introduction to Alfred Hitchcock movies. So I always wanted to see Rear Window, but oh. when I watched it, I loved it. I thought it was great. Excellent. Great I hear
0: about all these uh newfangled shows today. <laughs> that I have to add to the psycho, list. Uh,
1: not Psycho. Psycho is very old. It is not a show that anyone watches anymore.
0: By old, you mean like 2003?
1: Newer than that,
0: but it, like old <laughs> old in
1: the sense where it's not like a classic enough show where anyone still talks about it. So it's not really worth watching, you know, like it's just completely, it's more out of style than old, I guess. It's just lame now. So no, I wouldn't watch it if I were you.
0: Well, now, now I'm just downright curious. But yeah, so I'm very excited to hear Benjamin's take on this one for sure, uh, or rehear the thoughts rather. Okay, so a little bit of information about Rope from 1948. It was directed by Sir Alfred Hitchcock. The screenplay was by Arthur Lawrence. The story was by Hume Cronin. Is based off of the play Rope by Patrick Hamilton. And it has quite a few stars in this cast. So we have, of course, James Stewart as Rupert Cadell. And interestingly enough, this is the only movie that Jimmy Stewart made with Hitchcock that he did not really like. He felt that he was miscast in the role. Personally, I think that he fit it pretty well, actually. I can kind of see where he's coming from, where maybe a more eccentric. Guy versus your guy next door might have played this off a little bit uh, more fittingly, but Jimmy Stewart's such a good actor, where I was just so convinced, and I thought he was great and perfect in it.
1: Can I ask questions during this? Yeah, or is that not allowed? <laughs> okay, I'm curious of what role um, that actor typically played. Was he more of like a commanding leading man? Uh, I'm not familiar with old movies, so what what kind of role did he typically fill?
0: I would say that James Stewart was like your Tom Hanks of today back in the day. He's kind of that all American guy next door, neighbor,
2: average oh, Joe. Oh,
1: okay. I see I see it. And this, this character is more like the intellectual type. So it didn't really fit his his wheelhouse.
2: You know.
0: I think, yeah, I you could say that, I guess. I mean, I think he's so talented that he obviously made it work. But I think that it was just different then. Mm. Uh, have you seen It's a Wonderful Life?
1: Yes, but a very long time ago. I'm not sure I've ever seen the whole thing. I also okay. did not know that was the actor on It's a Wonderful
0: Life. Yes, yes, Good. that's George Bailey. So there, there really? you have it. Yes.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Oh, I can't wait to rewatch that one with you this winter, Ben.
1: <laughs> Sorry, continue.
0: No, I think that was an excellent question. We also have Joan Chandler as Janet Walker. So in our previous recording, the question was raised if she was in other movies. And she was actually only in three movies total, I'm pretty sure. We have Sir Cedric Hardwick as Mr. Henry Kentley. And this actor was super, super well-versed in Shakespearean work. So he's very old school. We have Farley Granger as Philip Morgan. Now, Farley Granger was also later on starring in Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. So he worked with Hitchcock again. Very talented actor, for sure. We have Constance Collier as Mrs. Anita Atwater, Douglas Dick as Kenneth Lawrence. And that actor was actually in several movies and television shows, but then later became a psychologist in life. We also have Edith Evanson as Mrs. Wilson, and she was a very, very well-known character actress. And she actually coached Marilyn Monroe during Something's Gotta Give, which is the last project that Marilyn Monroe worked on before she passed away. And then we have Dick Hogan as David Kensley. And this was Dick Hogan's last work in the film industry, his last movie. Uh, And it's short but sweet to say the least. He's in it for like five seconds in the beginning, but uh, talked about it throughout. So <laughs> there you go. Now, we've mentioned this movie before on our podcast during our LGBTQ film history episode, I believe. And this is one of those 1940s films that somewhat features LGBTQ undertones, philosophy, and just plain dark twisted murder elements and with that combined i feel like this film has definitely gained a cult following of sorts over the following decades when it came out and even more bizarrely rope source material the 1929 play it's inspired by a true story and just a warning here the remainder of this episode will be discussing some triggering or disturbing content my threshold for gruesome stories is relatively up there, but this is just one that makes me feel a little bit queasy. And I don't know. I just get chills when I read about it and look at the the murders. And you know what? I was actually a little conflicted on whether or not I even thought it was worth going into the background story. But I think that it is because I see some parallels in the real story to some of the character actions in the movie. And I think with that, it's just interesting supplemental information to know. So here we go. In 1924, two University of Chicago students named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks. Now, the real-life murderers were considered brilliant. The one studied 15 languages and was going to study at Harvard Law. The other one skipped several grades and graduated from the University of Michigan at 17 years old. So graduated college at 17. And then he went on to be a grad student at the University of Chicago. So they grew up in the same hometown, but they bonded at university over their fascination with crime. The one guy, Leopold, was very interested in the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and his Übermensch concept, which is kind of a model of superior humans. So they applied that mindset to themselves because of how superior and smart they thought they were, and they thought they were quote exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men and thought they are not liable for anything they may do, end quote. So they started with thievery arson, but their acts weren't really recognized, so they decided to move on to murder. Now, Bobby Franks, the victim, was Loeb's second cousin and neighbor. And I'll keep the details to a minimum to not disturb anyone too much, but essentially they lured this kid to their car, offered him a ride home, They killed him in the car, and then they sent a ransom note to the family. The ransom note issue got messed up. In the meantime, the body was found, and then there was a huge investigation to find the perpetrators. So Leopold, one of the killers, gets a little cocky and decides to talk to detectives, police, reporters, journalists, etc., offering up theories as to what happened, And he even said a quote along the lines of, if I were to kill anyone, it would be Bobby Franks. So there you go. So how did they catch these murderers? Well, as the investigation goes on, they find a pair of glasses near Bobby's body. That model of glasses was only sold to three people in the Chicagoland area. Leopold was one of them. They were brought in for questioning, told a lie for their alibi. Their lie was caught actually by, um, I think, their chauffeur or someone who worked for them. And then they confessed, but each said that the other guy killed Bobby. They both went to prison. Now, during prison, they both tried reforming the schooling system in prison, but then Loeb was actually attacked and killed during prison. Leopold kept reforming the school system, and then he reorganized the prison library. He became a teacher within prison. He discussed bird studies from the birds he donated to the Field Museum. He volunteered his body to science by being injected with malaria and then undergoing treatment trials. And then with this, he actually was paroled in 1958 and went on to get a master's degree from the University of Puerto Rico, got married, and became a researcher for social services. And then he ended up dying at age 66 from a heart attack. So that is the backstory behind all this.
2: I feel like it's always in the older murder mysteries that have happened in real life. It's always like there's one piece of evidence. And that one (laughs) piece of evidence can only be tied to like 10 people in the entire country. So I don't know how they messed up that bad to leave. I, I'm sure they didn't know that the glasses were that rarely sold. But who leaves their glasses at a crime scene? Right.
1: It's also kind of like in the movie where they want to get caught. It's like, how do you mess up that bad? What adults who wear glasses typically lose their glasses? Once you're an adult, you're pretty good at keeping up with them. Oh I, would say. I don't wear glasses, but most adults I know. It's just very <laughs> weird.
0: Well, another detail. They left his body at a place where Leopold went to go birdwatching a lot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so when he was initially asked, he was like, Oh, I lost who so I was bird watching another week ago. <laughs> and there were just too many coincidences you know, adding up here.
1: It's it's honestly offensive how the idea that some people can't be held responsible for their actions. Uh, it, it has something to do with apathy where they're just not really connected to the real world.
0: Very strange backstory. Now, because this is such a twisted tale, there have been several adaptions in the arts over the years. And what's interesting is that right away, as soon as this was adapted, these guys' relationship was either sexualized or became non-platonic in the interpretations. Obviously, Rope is one of them. But the story also inspired the book and film Compulsion from 1959, uh, Swoon from 1992, and Loosely was the basis of Murder by the Numbers from 2002 with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Gosling. Compulsion has a more subtle sexual reference, like the one guy being into the other guy and that guy being into a girl. Uh, Interestingly enough, Dean Stockwell, who played the one character, the Nathan Leopold equivalent, he uh recently passed away so that's kind of crazy that we're talking about this movie and he just passed he's a really interesting figure because he was a very big child star in the golden era of Hollywood and then he grew up and became this really prolific character actor so incredible career uh, but then swoon in the 90s is a very explicit suggestion that these guys had a gay relationship murder by the numbers goes more into the guys being straight sexual rivals for the same girl and that that's what caused the tension between them uh rope is the earliest film of this obviously the play came first uh and it's probably the most subtle but it really does fit in with that time period mold of gay characters being seen as villainous which uh, is actually seen in a few movies of the time another alfred hitchcock movie or two and also uh the maltese falcon with peter Laurie. so It's a theme that comes up. Definitely check out that episode if you're interested in learning more. Something else that makes this movie really unique is that it takes place in real time with long shots, which was really quite unusual at the time. And I would argue it's even more unusual today. Uh, You just don't see that very often or movies just taking place in one room (laughs) or one setting. And it was quite uh, demanding, I would say, for the cast and crew of this film. You really could not make a mistake at all. So that was trying for everyone. I think a cameraman had a camera roll over his foot and they had to quickly cover his mouth and roll him off. And then someone dropped a glass <laughs> at one point. Then a prop master had to dive in and catch it before it like ruined anything.
1: By the way, I don't believe that story. No one's that fast. There's no way he did that. That's (laughs) impossible. No one's that good. There's no way on earth. There's no way.
0: I don't, I actually couldn't tell you which actor it was in which scene. This is just something I've read, but it wouldn't shock me if it was when the camera wasn't focused on them and like you're off camera and you're fixing things and like you just, I don't know, you're already there.
1: Maybe. Well, I want to drop a glass right in front of one of you two. And I want you guys to try to be fast enough to catch it. Unless you're the flash, there's no way. You guys think that yeah, happened? pretty I'm fast. Do you think that happened? Fast.
2: I, I think that happened. Well, it looks like we have to there. try this this weekend.
1: <laughs> wow. That's like a bonus. That's bonus old so movie podcast footage. Right <laughs> I was trying to catch a glass. There, okay. Can
0: literally- we try with like a plastic cup? Does that count?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, that's a good call. We have nice classes. Um, Emma, I want you to post a poll after this episode on social (laughs) media, asking how many people believe that actually happened. I'm truly curious. All right. I will. Sheep. 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 Okay. There's no way that happened. There's no (laughs) way. It's like, listen, I don't blame them for saying that. That's like a fun fact. And I do completely believe it's hard. I'm not trying to minimize it, but that story did not happen.
2: No I think, actually i think not, not to sidetrack uh this is a different story but on tiktok i did see a video of this woman who was the maid of honor at her best friend's wedding and she was like standing next to the couple when they started cutting into the cake but they cut into the cake in a way where the cake almost fell off the table it was like about to fall off the table but she jumped and she caught it and it didn't fall anywhere
0: No, what if, Ben, what if it was like that, where they like had it kind of on the edge, you know, when you put something on the edge and it starts falling off and you can see it falling?
1: Emma, that's that's a good angle. That's why it's important to talk about stuff because I hadn't considered that, but that could happen. I could see that. (laughs)
0: I think what's hilarious to me is that we already had this conversation and I know you've been sitting on this story now for quite some time. I did. I <laughs> wanted,
1: the first time you said it, I wanted to interrupt you, but I didn't. I, I just did not But this time I did and I'm glad I got to because that's a, do you, th- we need to find someone. Emma, I know you've had people who've had firsthand accounts of the movie on before we need to get someone on from the cast and we need to ask them about that moment if they actually think it happened because there's no way on earth i'm going on record now
0: i will find someone from this cat like i think this is a three-person effort maybe a whole podcast nation (laughs) effort if you know someone who worked on rope uh in any in any department cast crew whatever as long as they were present for filming
1: Right. We might need to get like a child or something based on the
0: time. Well, well, I don't know if there were any children in this movie. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm
1: saying the children of someone. Like, if you know the child of the person who claimed to have done this, please inform us. And we will ask the kid if their dad told the story or if they said it was bullshit. There's right. no way on earth, I'm telling you now, it's impossible. Well, Nobody's that fast. No one's that good.
0: To be seen, we will uh, keep you all updated on what we find out either amongst our own experiments or first-hand accounts. Another challenge in this movie is the background window. It had to change from afternoon to evening. So the lighting had to be altered and this, you know, steam coming off of the pipes and everything. And the, well, I feel like the one oh, cloud doesn't change. No. Oh my gosh. By the way, <laughs> okay. I, love I know this window. is
2: this is so random and I couldn't help but take note of it when I first saw the window there is one cloud and granted all the clouds look fake because of the set but one of the clouds is like going through the building it looks like it like they just shoved a cloud like they cut the building in half and then shoved a cloud in it It it's on the far right side to me so if you guys I think you guys should take note of that there were a
0: couple suspicious clouds. I mean, as beautiful as they were, I, I don't know how realistic
2: some of those clouds were.
1: By the way, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but when they opened the window, that's when the movie got me for sure. I love that backdrop. I think it's really pretty for some reason. It is. I think it it's is. really cool. And it's- that's when the movie really hooked me. It kind of kind of blew me away. I was like, this is going to be good from this point forward.
0: And it does some good exposition because that's a pretty killer view. So you know that you must have quite a bit of moolah in order oh, to afford that That's a
1: great point, Emma. I that
0: pretty kind killer of place.
2: view. <laughs> oh, but a bump.
1: <laughs> it's really good just in position because on one hand, you're like doing this lowly act of murder. And then on the other hand, you're like, oh,
2: fuck. These people
1: are rich as, sh- as sh- Shoot. People have all kinds of money. Okay, Emma, are we cursing this episode or not?
0: You already have, so... <laughs> yes! Yeah! <laughs> well, let's try to keep it to a minimum.
1: <laughs> let's go! I love to hear it.
0: All right. I, I think I... By the time you listen to this, I'm pretty sure the explicit warning will be up there. So you might hear swears on this episode. I'm sorry, everyone. It's a special
1: uh, event. I'm here. You know I got a curse.
0: You know where uh, <laughs> uh, and with that, this is actually Alfred Hitchcock's first movie and in- Color. So he really worked mostly in black and white up until this point. And I actually think he really likes black and white from an artistic perspective. But as we've seen with his later works, he does magnificently with color as well.
1: Well, What point of Alfred Hitchcock's career are we right now? Are we pretty early? Are we in the middle? Are we late?
0: This is Is pretty pretty established. This is pretty in the middle. So you're seeing his work kind of like the 30s so we're like early middle
1: okay yeah was alfred hitchcock like a big pool at this time like did people run out to see hitchcock movies at this time
0: oh yeah he was definitely gaining a lot of notoriety because not i guess notoriety because his movies really pushed the envelope they really stepped outside the box uh so a lot of our listeners will know this, but I don't know if you're as familiar, Ben, so I'll just rehash it now. There was this thing called the production code. Now, in order to mass produce and spread out and have your movie be viewed in the States, you had to have your movie approved by the production code administration. And there were several rules you had to follow. So, like, no gay references. Uh, nothing too violent, no interracial relationships, I'm pretty sure was one of them. Mm. And then also like Rebecca uh, Rebecca's a really good example of one. We haven't covered that movie, but the the movie had to be altered because in the book, you can't get away with killing someone uh, like a woman. But in the movie, they had to change that around a little bit. Interesting. Um, yes. So he was really a guy who kind of took on the the grim, the dark comedy, the murder, the horror, the suspense, and people liked that. So people did like seeing his films and they were quite popular.
2: I was going to go back to you saying that this is Alfred Hitchcock's first uh movie and color yes uh, I just wanted to point out that I know that that's not what he's like known for but I think he did a really good job with it because I know we've talked about this a little bit before but uh how just he uses a lot of color pretty meaningfully like all of the different guys' outfits they're all different colors and yes. that's for a purpose so I thought he did a very good job despite not having much experience with it.
0: Yeah, that was actually, that's a really important call because sometimes I even take that for granted. Like all those suits are a different color so you could distinguish everyone and everyone has their own personality. But that's really something that you get to play with for the first time. So he really embraced that change and he does take color full on. I mean, we see it in the trouble with Harry. They really take advantage of that autumn foliage. Uh, And Mm. then he he really dives back into the black (laughs) and white in Psycho, 1960. So he gets back there. He's he's really good at mastering all of it. Very visual director. He places a lot of importance on the image that you're seeing or not seeing that's being taken away from you.
1: Was, was Hitchcock at the time like the premiere of movies as we think of him now? Because I, I don't know much, but I know that Alfred Hitchcock is like the SSS tier of filmmaking, especially for that time. Was he considered that With with his contemporaries?
0: You know, I would say he, okay. So, like later on in film, the term auteur really enters into the lexicon that you have this signature as a director where people can tell who made it. And I Mm. would say that Hitchcock is kind of like this auteur director where you can absolutely distinguish that he is the one who did this like um when you go into the theater you knew that he was the director whereas i could maybe show you a random movie mm. from the 30s or 40s or 50s and you probably wouldn't be like oh gotcha. that's so and so
1: that's a great example because it's like wes anderson like wes anderson might not right. make the most money but it's like everyone knows a wes anderson movie when they see it now no matter like, what they're very unique
0: Precisely. So that's how I would describe Hitchcock. So you oh. you know what you're getting and you know that it's him.
1: Very interesting.
0: Yes. So uh, another tidbit kind of connecting to what we touched on earlier. This movie was banned in several American cities because of the implied gay relationship between Philip and Brandon. So we will get more into if we think that that's really prevalent or not. But a lot of film... Lovers do consider this to be a piece of LGBTQ cinema.
1: It's very interesting because I see myself becoming an Alfred Hitchcock fan. I feel I do truly. I really like suspenseful movies. Oh, and then, I guess I didn't know that's what Hitchcock movies were. Yes, yeah. for sure. See, I didn't know that about it, but I've always loved suspenseful oh. movies.
0: Oh, you're um, gonna, you're you're in for yeah. a treat. Just like an absolute treat. Just <laughs> your world opening up. Here we go, the rewatch. Now, uh, this oh, one's going to be gosh. a little bit different. We're going to read the whole thing and we're just going to start talking because what we learned from our earlier recording session was that we just had an abundance of thoughts. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that we're just going to see where the night takes us or day if you're listening to this in the day. Here we go. Two brilliant athletes. Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan strangle to death their former classmate from Harvard University, David Kentley, in their Manhattan penthouse apartment. They commit the crime as an intellectual exercise. They want to prove their superiority by committing the perfect murder. After hiding the body in a large antique wooden chest, Brandon and Philip host a dinner party at the apartment, which has a panoramic view of Manhattan's skyline. The guests who are unaware of what has happened include the victim's father, Mr. Kentley, an aunt, Mrs. Atwater, and his mother is unable to attend because of a cold. Also present is the victim's fiance, Janet Walker, and her former lover, Kenneth Lawrence, who was once one of David's closest friends. Brandon uses the chest containing the body as a buffet table for the food just before their housekeeper, Mrs. Wilson, arrives to help with the party. Brandon and Philip's idea for the murder was inspired years earlier by conversations with their prep school housemaster publisher, Rupert Cadell. While they were at school, Rupert had discussed with them, in an apparently approving way, the intellectual concepts of Nietzsche's Ubermensch theory and De Quincey's art of murder as a means of showing one's superiority over others. He, too, is among one of the guests at the party, since Brandon in particular thinks that he would approve of their, quote, work of art unquote. Brandon's subtle hints about David's absence indirectly lead to a discussion on the art of murder. Brandon appears calm and in control, although when he first speaks to Rupert, he is nervously excited and stammering. Philip, on the other hand, is visibly upset and morose. He does not conceal it well and starts to drink too much. When David's aunt, Mrs. Atwater, who fancies herself a fortune teller, tells him that his hands will bring him great fame, She refers to his skill at the piano, but Philip appears to think that this refers to the notoriety of becoming a strangler. However, much of the conversation focuses on David and his strange absence, which worries the guests. A suspicious Rupert quizzes a fidgety Philip about this and some of the inconsistencies raised in conversation. For example, Philip vehemently denies ever strangling a chicken at the Shaw's farm, although Rupert has seen Philip strangled several. Philip later complains to Brandon about having a rotten evening, not because of David's murder, but because of Rupert's questioning. As the evening goes on, David's father and fiance begin to worry because he has neither arrived nor phoned. Brandon increases the tension by playing matchmaker between Janet and Kenneth. Mrs. Kentley calls, overwrought because she has not heard from David, and Mr. Kentley decides to leave. He takes with him some books that Brandon has given him tied together with the rope that Brandon and Philip used to strangle his son. When Rupert leaves, Mrs. Wilson accidentally hands him David's monogrammed hat, further arousing his suspicion. Rupert returns to the apartment a short while after everyone else has departed, pretending that he has left his cigarette case behind. He asks for a drink and then stays to theorize about David's disappearance. He is encouraged by Brandon, who hopes Rupert will understand and even applaud them. A drunk Philip, unable to bear it anymore, throws a glass and accuses Rupert of playing cat and mouse games with him and Brandon. Rupert seizes Brandon's gun from Philip and insists on examining the chest over Brandon's objections. He lifts the lid of the chest and finds the body inside. He is horrified and ashamed, realizing that Brandon and Philip used his own rhetoric to rationalize murder. Rupert disavows all his previous talk of superiority and inferiority and fires several shots out the window to attract attention. As the police arrive, Rupert sits on the chair next to the chest. Philip begins to play the piano, and Brandon continues to drink. Cut. All right, so that is the whole movie in in a nutshell, if you will. So it starts off pretty cheery and all. We get this beautiful Manhattan apartment view of the place. And then we hear a scream, and the murder starts off right away. And we're off and running. The, the action has happened, the inciting event goes down, it's on. Uh, and I would say that this could be seen as the start of some of those LGBTQ mindsets that pop up in people's minds when they watch this. Philip and Brandon, and I know I mentioned this to you guys earlier. They have a kind of orgasmic thrill from this. And instead of creating life together, they take life together. And then you get some other subtle lines or quotes here that I think could be interpreted a certain way. Like this, you frighten me ever since we were in prep school and Philip is talking about Brandon's charm and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that this is some of the strongest examples of that interpretation coming out. What are your guys' thoughts? You know,
1: I think so earlier you mentioned the sinister gay
0: character and yes. I,
1: I realized that that is very much connected to how in media today you see the uh the bitchy gay character, which mm. is how gay so it's very much like a toned down version of that sinister character. And I think you see a little bit of like bitchy tones and how brandon interacts with people like he's very gossipy like you oh. can see that with the the female character so i think in that way you can definitely see the transitioning of how gay people are portrayed both of which are negative both stereotypes are bad but i think you can definitely see that that brandon's very this very controlling person socially like he's very good at manipulating people like he manipulated um his roommate or possibly lover into this <laughs> murder and, and and you see that his friends view him as this manipulating person mm. like he always has his hands and a lot of he's doing a lot of stuff interpersonally.
0: I think that's just a very good observation Ben I have to say you know when you look at I, I mean there's uh, this is not even scratching the surface but yes. so you you have this villainous gay character trope that that's earlier cinema and then well actually even earlier than this there were you know acceptable forms on screen and then the the code happens and blah 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 so then we get into this villainous part and then you don't really see a liberation until stonewall and then you get the 70s and you see a more freeing sense and then you know the the 90s you get uh, a little bit more of a like a uh, comical relief character mm. in your gay characters, like my best friend's wedding or birdcage. And then I do see in the two thousands, I see a swing back and I can't help but Well, I guess this is the the nineties or early two thousands and blanking on the year it came out. Uh, have you seen cruel intentions? I can't help, but think back to, um, Joshua Jackson's character in that. And he, mm. he thought it was, he took the role because he thought it was such a, like a, uh, forward movement for a gay character. When actually, I think you're kind of onto something, Ben. Where that character is really just going back to that villainous trend yeah. of them being the the bad guy, the sneak, or whatever. I see it go in ebbs and flows, and uh, it all starts from here.
2: Yeah, I uh, I agree. We were actually discussing this earlier today because we were watching a newer show. Uh, With that character type uh, where they're like, like they're bitchy.
0: What's the show out of curiosity?
2: uh, The show is called Never Have I Ever. It's on Netflix. I haven't seen that one. (laughs) Uh, He's like, he's definitely a side character. But Ben was remarking to me earlier about how he hates that, uh, that stereotype and that kind of character type. So it's funny that that kind of comes full circle to today. Oh, I
1: was just going to say, it's very much like a life mimics art and art mimics life. Do you know that phrase? Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I feel like when I I remember when I was young, having gay friends who were just discovering that they were gay. And to some extent, I feel like they would sort of mirror that bitchy gay character, because that's what they thought a gay man was. I think it's a very harmful stereotype where it's like, if you're a man and you, and you are, are gay, you somehow have to be like either one of the girls or like the, the gossipy guy or or something like that. I I think it's just a a very harmful stereotype that very much still exists in media.
0: Yeah. You know, I am not gay, Uh, I don't identify in the LGBTQ community, so I can't speak to it from a personal standpoint. But what I can say is that I think that the people that I connect with as being similar on my screen uh, can really impact how I view myself and what I want to be, just from like, just that's me personally. Uh, so I can absolutely see where it, it's a very dangerous trope to put out there. Uh, the, another one is like the the self-loathing uh, gay character mm-hmm. that happens kind of like in the 50s. but yeah it, it's it's dangerous what's what's put out there and it's something that I think that hollywood and and the like need to work on going forward with how we represent people.
1: whondra okay, Yes. Schitt's Creek has a great depiction of gay characters, in my opinion. I'm not gay, so I could be wrong. But in my opinion, Schitt's Creek is the best for (laughs) depicting gay characters, and it is an example of how it should be. That is all.
0: (laughs) Yes. other things in this opening segment, uh, we get to see the two personalities of the guys. Brandon likes the thrill. He likes dancing around, getting caught. Philip is a little bit more cautious, a little bit more rattled by this. And I mentioned this on our earlier recording of this, and I'm going to say it again, but I couldn't help but think back to Arsenic and Old Lace that we covered the last time, Isabella, because... I feel like you have Jonathan and you had Dr. Einstein. Jonathan's very confident, like, yeah, murder. You just got to murder people. Murder, murder just got to murder. And then mm-hmm. you have Dr. Einstein, who's like, no, no, I don't know. <laughs> and he's a little bit more neurotic. And you get this alpha male, beta male teamwork trope. And I see that paralleled here also of Brandon being this confident, cocky, Alpha, and then Philip being the beta who's kind of helping with the dirty work without a real clear reason why, but there's kind of like an emotional, psychological thing that they're implying, obviously. Yeah, so that reminded me again of like Peter Lorre's portrayal.
1: Did you think there were any Sigma men in this movie?
0: (laughs) What's a Sigma man, Ben?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, a Sigma man is this uh, new age Uh, term for a man who's neither an alpha, which is like a leader, or a beta, which is a follower, but a man who is a a lone wolf, if you will. If the alpha and betas are like the lions where there's a leader, the uh, sigma men are like the uh, lone (laughs) lone wolves. Um, And sure, it is really dumb, but so is alpha and beta men because none of these things actually exist in humans. Um, But I mean, this movie has astrology. It's just as dumb as astrology. Okay,
0: well, that was a way harsh, tie. Uh, we're <laughs> on astrology later. <laughs> Back to toxic masculinity. Uh, Do you
1: ever want to set it, upset the Oremuses, just say astronomy <laughs> is nonsense. Which we all know it is. <laughs> How would the moons impact us? Doesn't make any sense. This is coming I, from the man listen.
2: who earlier was referring to him as the contrarian Aquarian., okay, but listen, like to point out. Listen, so he listen, does listen. believe that there is some truth to astrology.
1: <laughs> listen, I like astrology, but it's not a real thing. i I like a lot of fictional stuff. I like superheroes a lot. There's no such thing as superpowers. You can like it without thinking it's <laughs> real.
0: Well, do you think Sigma men are real? And who do you think is a Sigma no, man? No, I
1: don't. I really do not <laughs> believe Sigma men are real. Is it funny? Yes. It is objectively hilarious. That doesn't mean it's real.
0: Let's say conceptually, which of these characters <laughs> fits with the description of a Sigma male to you? Okay.
1: I think the dad- Because we kind of,
0: I, we had a couple that we talked about.
1: The dad, maybe. The dad of David. He seems like he's very much okay- With going against the grain, he clearly has some money. He's got his own stuff going on. He's his own man. Maybe that just might be an older man thing, though, where you're not too concerned about the opinions of other men.
0: Yeah, I can kind of see that in that he's willing to rock the boat and say this conversation's stupid. Okay, so earlier, because earlier I thought, oh, is Rupert Cadell uh, a Sigma male? And you said no, that he's an alpha.
1: I think ruber is the ultimate alpha because if you look at the plot of the movie david and uh, i have the name correct right wait who's the guy who ruber R- Fuck, R- i'm so dumb R- brandon brandon, <laughs> brandon
2: Phillip? and philip yes
1: brandon and philip brandon and philip were inspired by this guy just his words inspired them that hard that they committed a murder clearly men want to follow this guy really bad so i think he is for sure an alpha
2: well, see so in, that case, do you, in that case ben do you think that Brandon and Philip are technically betas because they're following I, in his footsteps and they're not really listening to themselves
1: I would agree I think Philip I think Philip is a little bit younger so I think he's like an alpha in the making because he clearly has good control over <laughs> But see that's the thing is he's a little bit he moves kind of like how a powerful woman is in traditionally where he like is very good at interpersonally controlling people where he's like oh Brandon? Yes, 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 yes. Brandon. Sorry.
2: Oh. Where he where he
1: goes, he says this to someone and then this to someone and it messes with them and he gets the reaction out of people he wants to. That's like traditionally a more, I would say, true female thing to do, where you're like gossiping and, and Controlling people that way.
0: You know, uh, uh Brandon, okay. So I think that that is a great observation because when we look at the actual murder itself, Philip does the murder, right? Like Philip is the killer, like the actual killing. Brandon's just as guilty. But Brandon, his warfare method is really the social game. It's that thing that we talk about with, what? you know.
1: I'm sorry, did I get my name wrong? I met. I meant the guy who is really in control of the situation.
2: Brandon. Brandon. Yeah. Brandon's the, the one non- that's in the blue suit that is yes. like super manipul- manipulative of the relationship. The
1: non-piano player. Yes.
2: Yes, non-piano okay. player.
0: Did
1: I say what I wanted to say correctly?
2: You did, I'm pretty sure. Okay,
1: good, good, good.
2: Okay. In <laughs> case you need to remember, Philip plays piano. P plays. Oh, oh yes. that's,
0: great. That's, a great, that's great. That's great. Man. Great mnemonics. I love it. <laughs> All right, yes. Uh, Brandon really does engage in that social warfare, that gossip, mm-hmm. that um, <laughs> uh, relational undermining and relational warring. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a really good observation because we really see that in studies and culturally. That's a thing that we look out for as girls mature at a different rate than boys and engage mm-hmm. in. It's you know a concern. I think. That we have for our daughters of the younger generations of gossip and mean girl behavior. Uh, but that's very much Brandon's game.
1: Is that a sociopath behavior? I'm curious.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. So I would just straight up call Brandon a sociopath. I would say he has antisocial personality disorder and probably narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, he says the only crime they could commit is getting caught. And there are several things he does that raises flags in my book. But um, it, it, like, he's such a sicko, just like serving yeah. the food uh, over to his father, like the victim's father. There's, he's a freak. There's a lot of things he does where he thinks he, he's above people or things don't apply to him. It's really interesting to wonder where, Philip fits in from a diagnostic perspective, but what I can say is I think there's a codependency issue between.
1: The two. Mm. What's interesting when you were talking when you were talking about them being gay at one point, um, uh, the main character speaks for Philip and he says, "We're we're going up to the country together," which is very much the way couples typically speak about each other. This is like, "Oh, I'm going up to the country because." Isabella's is feeling anxious. It's it's very much how someone talks about their significant other, where they're together and they do stuff and they make decisions together. Like when Instead a guy orders for like, a girl at dinner. Exactly right, and it's very different than how roommates behave because there's a certain <laughs> level of you're independent in that relationship. But the way they talked about each other was very much, very, very uh, like they were in a relationship. In fact, I was thinking that maybe one of them was the one who had the money, and the other one wasn't. It's it's kind of what I got from their relationship. Is that Philip wasn't from money, and the other one was taking care of him. Mm,
2: That's interesting. Um, You know, so, okay. I have a lot of thoughts about these two as partners, as roommates, whatever. Whatever you'd like to call them. But, I mean, they have the Perfect classic duo relationship where one person's kind of unhinged and then the other one is kind of their sidekick, but they're also like very anxious all the time. So I feel like Brandon has just is insane. I think he's a crazy person, obviously. So he has no problem with the murder, he's totally down with it. I think he definitely would want to do it again, whereas Philip is more freaked out. And kind of going back to like their whole relationship in general, I think what kind of signaled to me that they were a couple for sure was right after uh, they had committed the murder Um, and Philip was so shaken up, shaken up, uh, that he just couldn't even take his gloves off. So Brandon very gently removed his gloves from him. So I thought that was a very tender moment. But when it comes to looking at the power dynamic between the two, you can tell that Brandon is really in control because I think it's honestly even more than just one occasion. Brandon does speak for Philip. So if Philip starts to freak out, like, like deeper into the movie when he's drinking more and more, uh, Brandon's like, oh, oh, he's just drunk. Like, just don't interact with him. He's just being crazy. So I think Brandon could definitely have more money in the relationship and thereby have more control on Philip. Because he kind of just treats him like his little pet who just helps him with whatever.
0: Yeah, that power and control dynamic, like abusive relationship of sorts. And I totally forgot the mentioning of the gloves, So I'm so glad you brought that up because I also saw that. Oh, and I don't want to forget this because I almost forgot in the last recording. But okay. So they ask each other how they feel uh, like during and after the murder and everything. And Brandon talks about it in kind of like, uh, like a sex parallel way, in my opinion, where he's like, you know, it's something they were just doing. And then he felt this like surge once it was done and all of that. And then it's interesting because the real life murder, they actually asked Lope how he felt and all that. And Loeb said that he always wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. And having done it, he said that he really felt the exact same, like didn't feel anything different before or after. So that's really spine chilling to me (laughs) to to hear that anecdote. And then it's kind of crazy how that was brought into here is uh, just doing something like an ordinary task. But yeah, moving on, I I think that there are some beautiful shots in this scene. Uh, Like we said, Hitchcock's a very visual director. One of my absolute favorites is when they're zeroing in on the rope at the beginning and then uh, Phillips bringing it into the kitchen, dropping it into the kitchen, and then the door is swinging. So you just get slices of the shot. I think that that's an extra beautiful one. Uh, There's another one later on where the crew gets really hyped up talking about wondering where David is and everything. And you don't see them. You just see the housekeeper, Mrs. Wilson, doing her stuff, cleaning everything off slowly off the body itself. So you're really zeroed in on what they're saying and kind of imagining what they look like, which I think is a really good tool. Again, one of those uses of restraints and not showing you everything. And we kind of talked about this earlier. And I'd be curious if you remember and wanted to bring it up again, Ben. But I think an element of a play is that you can only see it from one view, like the camera doesn't move and all of that. Whereas in a movie, you can withhold information from the audience or show it. What are your thoughts? Do you think that this was a good move to have the camera work the way it was?
1: I thought the camera work was kind of distracting. I don't know. Maybe if I was in if i was in the 40s and i saw the movie i would have thought it was cool but i felt like the movie really felt like a play and it could have been a play and i the camera work if anything distracted it because it's really all about those interpersonal relationships and it's it, less about what you're seeing now sometimes i will say sometimes it was really good because one moment i think of was when the door was swinging back and forth to yes. the kitchen you can see Brandon. He looks like a stereotypical, like, evildoer. Like, he looks <laughs> truly evil in that moment. Like, he really... Like, the way they frame him, like, he's... I believe he's smiling, like, very menacingly. He so has a really,
0: malicious smirk on his face.
1: For sure. This and so
0: grin, it, eating grin.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he clearly looks... He clearly... like. That moment is great, but I think in general, the camera work was a little bit too much. One other moment I liked, maybe I'm wrong on this, when they zoomed in on, I forget whose coat it was, but they zoom in on a suit jacket. And from that moment forward, I felt like Brandon became less of our lead in um, the head, the house head, or uh, I'm forgetting who Rupert? the Rupert more so became our lead. Now I might be reading into it too much and that might've been unintentional, but that moment I also did like, I thought that was a good touch, but everything else kind of disliked.
0: Yeah. I think you can, for sure. If, and when you watch more old Hollywood movies, I think it is very easy to tell which ones were based off of plays and which weren't because the ones based off of plays are really in one location for like the entirety of, of the movie
1: this. I like that about it. I thought it was very interesting. I I really liked that about the movie, but maybe I would have liked it more if it was a play. I think the elements of the movie I really liked was the story itself, like the stuff you would have gotten to play. And I wasn't as crazy about a lot of the cinematic features of the
2: movie.
0: Yeah. I thought that the writing of this was uh, one of the strongest points. The script was great. I love all of the Little linguistics of locked up and, at the mother's house and knock them dead and you know I don't really
1: reminds me of I don't know I, mean, I don't know if you do comedies but it, it reminded me a little bit of the movie Airplane where they take everything <laughs> where they use have you guys seen Airplane yes <laughs> yeah that's one old movie I love where they use double entendres and they take everything literally and it's like used as a joke. This one was used as like an element to the murder. So in that way, I see some similarities.
0: All right. I I like it. I like it. I can see it. I feel like there are some literal words that are used as a joke, but it just adds to the the darkness of
1: what's going on. You should definitely cover the movie Airport, because I love that movie. (laughs) That movie's so good. Oh, my God. That's an old movie I love. I've seen that movie 4,000 times, and it's fantastic. Excellent.
0: Um, I I also think that there's some tension filled moments when like, I just couldn't help but think like, Jesus, they're just talking a little too loud. And the the housekeeper comes over and joins in on the conversation after catching the last words. It's just a little too, Philip, not Philip, I'm sorry. Brandon just likes walking that line. He likes the thrill of it. He likes the potential of getting caught. And he also likes doing other sick things like the matchmaking thing. And what he says, the line of your chances are better with her than you think. Like what an idiot. Yeah. That is a ballsy move to, to say that. Cause why, 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 why else? Why would you like, I not the next follow-up question be why? And then <laughs> what was your answer? mask
1: off? That's a real mask off moment right there. Like, David's what's a, what's really a
0: mask painful. off moment then? Um,
1: <laughs> well, I guess a mask-off moment is when it's usually used with um closeted white supremacists, like people on YouTube who make ah. videos that are popular and they're in they're they're racist but in very subtle ways. They use things like dog whistles. But then there are moments where they get upset and they're ranting where they come out and they maybe start to say the N word or they admit that black people are in some way less intelligent. That's a mask off moment. And in that moment, he was coming mask off. He wanted people to know he was a murderer.
0: (laughs) You know what? I think you're, I think you're right. The mask is off right there. And we get a little bit more insight into maybe some motive for why they picked David. Okay, in um, Murder by the Numbers, the victim is totally random. In the real-life case, the victim is like, you know, random-ish, but there's a connect of sorts where they could lure them. This is weird because it, it is a friend of theirs and someone that they've known for quite some time. But then you get this background info that Janet has dated... uh Brandon in the past right because she mentioned that like first when he was like first me then Kenneth then David so she's Mm -hmm. dated three members of this friend group and I feel like this is Brandon's way of trying to punish her and I can't help but feel like that went into the selection of David and I, I just think that Janet should have run for the hills from this friend group uh to begin with but I mean like like I said earlier Brandon is just not the kind of guy. He just gives me bad vibes. He's not my type of person. I think he's just toxic all around. So no part of me would have wanted anything to do with him in the first five minutes of meeting him.
2: I think it's time for Janet to to either leave this city or, like you said, leave this friend group. Because it seems like her love life has been very limited to only the men in this friend group. And it's time to go. <laughs> this is not the right group for her. These are not the right men for her. Granted, David sounds like he could have been a very, very lovely guy. And he was just selected. And that was very poor. That, that was very that was sad for her. But I think she needs to get out of there. I'm worried for her.
0: Uh, she's in New York City, one of the biggest cities in the world.
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> there, there's got to be so many options.
0: Oh man, yeah, Janet, Janet, Janet—not the best choices there. And I and I do feel very sorry for her. We also get to meet Mrs. Atwater a little bit more, and she is very into astrology, which is funny because it, it's actually been a moment since I've watched this, and since. Watching this, I've kind of understood astrology more. We're like from friends and just looking into it more. Uh, and I think that it's a really interesting element when they have her read fortunes, and it can be so ambiguous. Like you think it's one thing for all of it, but then there's this other meaning behind it, and it's kind of like uh, Maggie, the fortune teller from Game of Thrones, her prediction of the. Uh, Little brother going to kill you, but then it's like, oh, not the little brother. But then that didn't really come to fruition on the show. Sorry for spoiler <laughs> <Coiler> alert. <laughs> I didn't say who's little brother.
1: <laughs> does this does this movie pass the Bechdel test? I don't believe it does. Actually,
0: um, I would say that it might when Mrs. Atwater and, um janet are talking about like astrology maybe but given they are talking about guys but they talk about girls too i feel like
1: oh okay wow see i didn't feel like this movie portrayed women in a very positive way
0: you know i wouldn't say i don't know if alfred hitchcock is known for his anti-sexism in films (laughs) i wouldn't say that that's a, a thing i will say i think the
1: maid i think the housekeeper was a pretty all-around likable character.
0: Yeah, I I really enjoy Mrs. Wilson. I really think that she did a fantastic job of portraying that literally confused member of the staff of, I, I don't know what is going on. <laughs> like, this is weird. And then it just, that's enough. That's enough for Rupert to <laughs> so, know something's, <laughs> something's wrong. Well, like the real life case... I'm pretty sure oh, you, it was.
1: You said something about the chauffeur. I yeah, remember. their driver. Or?
0: Yeah, in the real life case, their the their driver. Um, so they rented a car for the murder, and the chauffeur was watching the car. Like the chauffeur had it in his garage, and then they made something up about like having to go get the car fixed so that they didn't have their car that weekend, so they couldn't go anywhere. But the chauffeur was like, "I had it that weekend," mm-hmm. so.
1: That's know. a very that's a very nice connection actually to the real murder.
0: I can see maybe how she came into this of like, okay, why are you keeping me out of the house before a party? That's really strange. Um, it is strange, and all of that and whatnot. Oh yeah, but like you know, back to Mrs. Atwater's fortune telling. She she says that Janet's going to marry a tall, fair-haired young man, and then she says. Philip's going to be, his hands are going to be famous, which is really interesting. Cause like, I think your mind can't help but go to that where you think, no. oh, it's for murder, not for the piano playing. <laughs> and then Philip is a cancer and that's a water sign. Terrible idea. Ter- <laughs> he, he, in no way was, was Philip down to murder someone. I can already tell you.
2: You know, what sold me on Mrs. Atwater was the fact that she said she did not care for one girl and it was because she was definitely a Scorpio. Okay, and I okay, Emma, I know you're gonna disagree with me on this. I've met Scorpios, I was like, sure, but a majority of the Scorpio population I struggle with. So when she said that, I was like, yes, this woman knows what she's talking about, and she is right. There's a lot of Scorpio hate in this movie, and I think it's completely unwarranted. <laughs> so, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But I will say
0: Scorpios uh, <laughs> are incredible signs. I, I, I love them. I really do.
2: No, I find them very intriguing, but I also find them very, very difficult. And I really struggle with them. And I appreciate that she can also see where I'm coming from. But Philip being a Cancer, spot on. That is 100% his astrological sign.
0: And Farley Granger in real life is a Cancer, I'm pretty sure.
2: Really? Look at that. I'm so glad we
1: brought up Sigma men and Alpha men, because that's what we would call male astrology, in the sense that it's also really (laughs) dumb and not true in just nonsense. So I'm glad we're also going to talk about real astrology.
0: She actually gets all of the celebrity mentions, uh, signs correct. Like Cary Grant really is a Capricorn. Cary Grant actually uh, was considered for the role of Rupert I'm Pretty Sure. Oh, wow. Yes. And you know what? I guess that kind of made it really meta when they started talking about celebrities because I was like, well, they all probably know each other in real life <laughs> and work together. And they're talking about them like they don't know them, which is kind of funny to me. Moving on. So Rupert is part of this party. And I think that you can see Brandon having an obsession with Rupert. I don't know if it's right to go as far as to say that Brandon is into Rupert or if he really does just really admire him or if it's that alpha admiration thing that we talked about. But I think that Brandon is extremely fixated on Rupert. And then I think you could maybe say Philip is then fixated on Brandon.
1: Mm, Very interesting. It's like a train of fixation.
0: It is like a train of fixation. I think it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's funny, but Philip gets caught in the lie about the chickens. First of all, how many chickens has this guy killed for the teacher to have seen it
1: too? That is weird. That is
2: weird. That's been a thing throughout his life. It sounds like his whole thing is just killing chickens, which it seems like it was a horrible idea to not own up to then killing the chickens, especially if he's done it in front of at least two of the people at this party.
1: You know, I think this is a good question. So, Isabel, we've been dating, in case you guys couldn't tell, me and Isabel have been dating many years now. Isabel, let's say hypothetically we went on vacation together, okay? We went to, like, okay. Texas, where a lot of my family's from, and you saw me just grab a chicken and snap it to neck like it was <laughs> And I've never told you I've done that. Before. I've never, I've never mentioned to you. I, I can kill a chicken in a heartbeat. Would that, would you be surprised? Would that change your opinion of me?
2: I think I'd be more so alarmed because you are someone <laughs> who's so put off by blood that you are. You're smart enough to be a doctor, but you can't because you can't deal with the blood. You can't deal with the gory stuff. So I would be very shocked if one day you up and just snapped a chicken <laughs> snack. I think I'd be pretty scared of you. Uh, So, yeah, I I guess I'd be surprised. That would really disturb me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen a chicken get killed as I am a big baby. But I'm sure if I saw it in real life, I would be terrified. For sure.
0: No. Well, okay. I think what's, to me, something that went to my head right away when they were talking about this whole chicken fiasco was (laughs) that I felt like... Um, Philip, I felt like Philip couldn't eat the chicken because he strangled chickens, but he had just recently strangled a person. So I felt like in his mind he had this weird cross wiring where it felt like cannibalism
2: if he ate the chicken. Mm-hmm. I got, I got that too. That's, that was my thought as well. just me. You thought that too. I also thought that. Yes.
1: And also, did he eat? anything for the duration of the movie chicken or otherwise
0: i feel like he drank a lot <laughs> i don't know well I
2: sure <laughs> that. will say they they did there was a small comment that definitely proved that he wasn't eating i think it was when um i think it was when mrs wilson came up to him at one point when he was bringing mm. everyone food and she was telling him oh gosh you should eat something you're getting so skinny
0: something That's like a that good point, babe.
2: Good so catch. I, I think he I think he might not have eaten anything at that party. A little
1: representation of male anorexia. Very Alfred Hitchcock was very progressive.
0: Good catch. Good catch. <laughs> um, that, that actually was a very good line. I totally forgot about that. I did too. I That reminds me. I also thought that the scene of uh, Philip breaking the
2: glass in his hand was another good one
0: with the blood
1: by the way there's a mistake that both me and Isabella noticed about that would you like to say that
2: I know you you caught it Ben. actually oh, yeah. you should okay thad. okay sure
1: you later see his hands which when um miss Atwater I believe is her name is doing the reading he has no cut on there whatsoever we paused the movie and looked no band-aid no nothing he's all fine so that 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 is a blunder that IMDb didn't even notice. I read the IMDb like section, <laughs> so I knew here. So movie exclusive for you guys. That is a mistake <laughs> that no one else even knows about. We might add it to the page. Who knows?
0: You know, you just did a great service to the movie lover community.
1: I, I really did. That that's a pretty big mistake, I would say.
2: Well, yeah, it was directly after he had cut his hand he went sat down by the piano and then she went over there was not there wasn't even blood on his hands there wasn't a cut there wasn't blood he was just perfectly fine maybe he's like
0: wolverine and he's a quick healer
2: <laughs> Ooh, maybe way talk was ahead of his time
1: we've <laughs> already talked about sigma men i know astrology. you'd appreciate that
0: ben <laughs>
1: why not add superpowers to it if we're just talking about all kinds of made-up shit yeah. <laughs> well, you
2: love superheroes, so let's not even get I started. Listen,
1: I love made up stuff, but I acknowledge it's made up.
2: <laughs> it's just well, good fun, Ben. It's just good fun.
0: Speaking of made up things, the story keeps unfolding. And I just feel like Brandon is more and more of an idiot. Uh, when they get into the discussion in front of David's father, which it makes me sick. Like it really does about, uh, how he and Rupert and Philip can murder. And then poor Kenneth is just the butt of the joke again, <laughs> <He's> not superior. <laughs> like this guy keeps being put down more and more and more. Is that like a gamma male? I have no idea.
2: No, he's, a, I, I think okay, if, there's one thing, if there's one thing to know and I hate to say it kenneth is definitely the beta of the group i love him i think he was it was hilarious he was kind of just getting uh, he was getting messed with the whole movie pretty much yeah. but i feel bad for him he was a beta
0: i can't help but go back to how similar kenneth and david looks the actors the the victim and the, kenneth uh, janet david. has a type <laughs>
2: She does have a type. It seems like she's very much so into blonde men.
0: I just picture those two actors going into the audition and one of you is going to have lines and one of you is going to be in it for five
2: seconds. (laughs) (laughs) One character, the whole movie is centered around you, but you're just not seen at all. Whereas the other one's in it the whole time, but it's just the butt of the joke the entire Uh,
0: time. (laughs) That's poor Kenneth. Yeah. And this is where the contrarian Aquarian concept comes exactly. into play, Ben. So this,
1: I'm glad we brought this up
0: because this <laughs> is why
1: I love this movie with my whole heart and why <laughs> I will remember this movie for the rest of my life. So the, um, the guy who figures it all out, can someone remind me of his name? Rupert. Rupert. I feel for Rupert in a way most of you simply can. not I really, Rupert, Rupert likes to have hot takes. Okay. And I, I love that about him. He really does. You can tell that that's who Rupert is, right? He likes to push the envelope and so much so he wants to justify murder to have a fun time at this dinner party. Like that's how devoted he is to having hot takes. And I very much in the same way. I'm a contrarian Aquarian through and through. You like really are. Is,
0: you really sure. do that's- like to get things riled up.
1: I love it. It's my favorite thing because we're, we're too, we're all too comfortable. Okay. We, we you know, it's good to have some lively conversation. And so our, our poor contrarian Aquarian in this movie is that later <laughs> horrified by the fact that people actually took his words and made them into actual action of murdering people. Cause really all he wanted to do was have a fun time and talk about Hot topics, and all of a sudden people are literally doing murder because of what he said. And I really do feel for him. You can tell it upsets him at the very end. And yeah,
0: I hope that bad. was a, a grand lesson for us all to, to be cautious with our words. What I do think is kind of funny is that Rupert pretty much came up with the whole plot of the purge franchise uh <laughs> decades <laughs> before it even happened oh wow
2: that
1: was funny have you guys seen
0: those movies i have I seen the movies. first one
1: is it good i've never seen them. I've always oh, um, them
2: i think you i think that you would like it just because of watching this yeah <laughs> i think so this is kind of the basis of all of the purge Emma. i think you hit the nail on the head <laughs> that is that's a great
1: take Emma. arguably contrarian aquarium take it so good.
0: <laughs> you know i am part aquarius uh yes, but poor poor Rupert. Poor Rupert and. No, Rupert
1: went fucking through it this movie. You can tell he was very upset by the events of the action.
0: Yeah, he inadvertently inspired a murder.
1: For sure. You know, yeah. the character of Rupert is fantastic because he's obviously a super nice guy. Like he's nice yes. to the help of um I forget the woman's name, but the Mrs. maid. Wilson. House- yes. He's, he loves her. He's very nice to her. No one treats her better in this movie. Someone who is objectively a lower class than them, but in a, a lesser stock, I guess, is how they would talk in those times. But no one's nicer to her than him. And so despite the fact that he does that, he still has the rhetoric of murdering the, the lesser man. So he's really a man of two worlds. He's a great I, character.
0: He does seem to have juxtaposing thoughts. He, he says one thing just to get a, you know, I don't know, a rise out of people, a a, a thought process going, a think tank, I don't know. But then he acts like very much in the sense of we are all one and no one is better than each other and keeping each other accountable, you know, not all of that. So, he's really a man of equality in the end. And I do Mm. think he treats Mrs. Wilson very nice, as if she's just another member of the party, quite frankly. So, I think that he is pretty lovely. And we also see that Janet and Kenneth are not that dumb because they're starting to put (laughs) Brandon's inconsistencies (laughs) and palsiness together. And they discover that something is amiss with this David situation.
1: That's the moment where you get to see that um, Brandon is really like the worst dude in the world. Because like he does this shit and he loves it. Like he just likes bothering people and ups- and like get- and upsetting people. But in a different way, where it's not just intellectual, but he actually harasses people to the extent where his friends... Believe leads to an actually kidnap someone just to get a rise out of everyone. Like that's how bad of a dude he is.
0: Isn't that crazy that that's where your first thought goes to? I, I feel, okay. I feel like I would worry if I didn't hear from someone, but we also don't have cell phones back in the day. So I can imagine mm. you don't, I can imagine you go without hearing from someone for quite some time. So it is interesting that their first thought is, you kidnapped david at all so it just goes to show you what kind of a guy brandon is and quite frankly philip is losing it first of all more and more as this goes on i think this was philip's move and i do not condone or endorse murder in any way shape or form but if philip was smart i feel like this was his moment to start deviating away from brandon and be like yeah he's crazy like, i don't know what he's a sick guy I don't know. <laughs> but no he's stuck to him he's stuck to brandon for sure you know,
1: that would have been a great twist what if philip just like ditched totally, him yes and pretended he had nothing to do with the murder and like then, to help the others uncover it that would have been a good twist that's that like, would... it's like a 2012 type movie where there has to be a twist <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. Maybe in the rewrite or the remake, who knows? Oh, but that's a good one. Uh, I I really like the interrogation scene with the piano. I I love that tune that Philip is playing and I love him getting progressively more anxious as Rupert is questioning him and the awkwardness of the conversation with the beautiful music playing. That's a great one. I think to me, the part that is so sick and the most just like, it makes me just literally physically ill is when <sighs> Brandon ties up Mr. Kentley's books with the rope that they use oh. to kill his son. That just disgusts me. Just oh. absolutely gross. But then you also have some other slight moments of Mrs. Wilson just about to open the chest and Brandon catches it just in time. I wonder if we should take a poll on that then to see if Brandon really could have closed the chest in time before she saw anything.
1: Mm, no way it was way too open there's no way that moment that like put that was very suspenseful that's why that movie is a suspense movie well i would the other thing i was thinking i was thinking maybe the body wasn't in the chest and maybe that's just what they were saying but it actually wasn't in there and i thought that was going to be the reveal but once again it was a simpler time in the 40s not everything (laughs) had to be a twist
0: Simplicity at its finest. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock sure knew how to pace the suspense.
1: See, and that kind of was the twist. The movie turned out exactly how you thought it was going to turn out, right? That was like the twist of it, is there wasn't a twist. If that movie was made now, there would have to be a twist, for sure. I think,
0: eh, I don't, I I guess throughout it, you don't exactly know how it's going to end. You wonder if these guys are going to get away with it or not. You know, you're right. You're right. So it gets amped up. They finally realize that something is wrong with David and the party just ends. But the biggest OMG moment to me that really sealed the deal that Rupert knew what was going on, because I feel like he was pseudo detective throughout this whole thing. I think he took a lot of clues from a lot of different people at this party, none of which who were present for the murder itself, but. Uh, pieced together all the circumstantial evidence and had a case going, but then when he was given the wrong hat and he saw the DK yeah. initials in that hat, it
2: was over. Also, what is with
0: it with these murderers in the in the hats in the <laughs> chest? This is very arsenic and old lacy again. It's like a trophy or something back
2: then. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I just, I don't know. I I guess maybe in those days, if you're just, well, I feel like maybe if you're just killing someone for the thrill of it, you're not really thinking about how to cover up your tracks. I feel like if you take someone's hat, you get rid of the hat. But in this movie, obviously that wasn't a concern because they were just so thrilled by it. Oh my gosh.
0: It's a big thing. Uh, Philip and Brandon are finally alone again. Philip is just at breaking point right now. And then Brandon is warped into thinking he's a demigod or something. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. The tension is phenomenal. They're both spiraling in different ways. Philip is fright and flight, and Brandon is frightened fight. And I, I think that the acting from both these actors are, is just terrific. Absolutely terrific. None of these uh, none of this in this movie was nominated for an Academy Award. But I think that to me That's crazy. Very award.
2: Come award. award.
0: <laughs> you know, it's it was weird at the time. It was a weird movie at the time. No, nah, that movie
1: I guess this is like a spoiler for them where we start our final thoughts but this movie so good. It's so <laughs> good. And the acting's great. I just love everything about it. I love when he comes back up.
0: Oh, guess, my gosh. You know what? Yeah. what do you think when I, Rupert I, comes back up? That,
1: I knew what was going to happen. there. I knew he was going to figure it out. From there, I knew. But I did see Rupert coming back up. I was surprised he left.
0: But there's great little bits of tension, like the gun, the gun in the pocket. Did you think that they were going to shoot him?
1: Maybe I did at the time. I'm really trying to put myself in the mind frame of seeing it. Maybe I did, honestly.
0: Because I think it's, it's like, you know, Ben's a chess fan.
1: More of a really good player than I'm a fan, but I'm with you. Sure. (laughs)
0: Anyway, uh, I would say this is a little bit of a chess game in terms of suspense. (laughs) I feel like you have the gun in the pocket. You think that that's going to be pulled on Rupert at some point, maybe behind the back, but Rupert calls it out. And Brandon comes up with another line and says, Oh, well, of course I have a gun in my pocket. I'm going up to Canada. I'm going to the country. Of course. Like, Oh, I can take it out. Well, that's fine. It's just really good. Like unexpected little moments here and there. And you, you wonder know, how's the gun kind of come back. It's,
1: the one of the better lines of this movie is when he says, I'm tired. And it's like, the game's over. Like, you took, you took it too far. Like, with the, like I'm done with this. Like, it's fun to talk about these ideas, but you, you, you cross the line that I'm not comfortable with. I'm, I'm done with you. Like, we're not friends anymore. We're not playing anymore. It's over. This is murder. I'm tired of this. I feel like that line is, is really good. I really read into that line.
0: That is a good one. One of my favorites in this climactic ending is when Philip loses it and goes cat and mouse, cat and mouse, which is the cat, which is the mouse. Because that's exactly what you're thinking as an audience. does
1: Does he do that while everyone's still there? Or is that after he comes back up? After. Well, at that point, why would he say that? That guy has a drinking problem. He has to get his drinking under control.
0: I think that he has a lot of problems, and uh, he just can't. It's cancer.
1: I <laughs> won't. <Stop>.
0: <laughs> I think he, he just could not keep it under control anymore at all, at all. No Philip finally caves. Brandon is doing everything, even still, to keep it all up, saying that Philip has the drinking problem and all of that. Yeah, he he does say that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, wow. and it's a great ending because ultimately, even Rupert grows and he realizes his true thoughts on things. That maybe he has that Aquarius energy where he's a humanitarian and really believes right. in empowering each other, and he doesn't believe in inferiority or superiority.
1: Well, that that's the thing because I think it's easier to think possibly. In an intellectual experiment as someone being inferior to you, right? You can think of someone, but in actuality, it's like people love this person. Like that's a whole human being over there. Like that's not an inferior. Why would you think it's okay to murder them? So just another good justification of intellectually thinking about something and the practicality of it, where he clearly did not think David was an inferior.
0: You know, you have this dichotomy of thought, Ben, that I think a lot of people don't have. And with that, it helps me get into the mindset of what Rupert thinks, because I think that one could watch this and be confused at how he can say one thing, but then Mm -hmm. really mean another And I don't always think about my thoughts sometimes, but when I think about my thoughts, I think you're right that you can think about something, but in absolutely no way believe in it. And I think that Rupert is realizing that and he's thinking about his thoughts now for the first time. Maybe he just doesn't have that awareness of it yet until this moment.
1: And he even has the thought where he says a man should stand by what he says, but clearly he's not standing by what he says. So even when he's trying to be honest, you see that he doesn't always believe what he means. It's this very like, it's this very interesting dichotomy that I think a lot of contrarian Aquarians go through, <laughs> where you want to have the hot take, but you're like, I don't believe that though. I'm just saying stuff to be fun at parties and be a good middle, like we saw at a what's that what's that show we were watching? Bit Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's a better middle at a dinner party than a contrarian aquarium. Yeah,
0: you know, you're absolutely right. That is absolutely it to a T. Uh, Rupert is absolutely devastated by his hot takes, leading to this not so fun party, and he just calls good old fashioned nine one one and shoots the gun a few times and the police just (laughs) know where
1: to go. By the way, that was a genius move. I would not have thought of that. I was like, how is this guy going to alert the police? But the gun move was genius. That man is a
0: genius. What part of you felt that that was more genius than calling the police?
1: Just that you didn't have to put down the gun or explain the situation in any way. It was just the best way to alert the police to the situation while maintaining power.
0: That is a very good take on it. I thought it was symbolic in the end as well of him asserting himself and also giving up a little bit. And I, I, th- I think it's a very not. I mean, at peace is the wrong word, but I, a satisfactory ending where I'm satisfied because. Philip decides to keep playing the piano, Brandon fixes himself a drink, and in that way they do something that is quite normative to him. And then uh Rupert's alone with his thoughts, pretty much.
1: Yeah. I I think there's also a very interesting display of normal like what normal people talk about, and then the unnormal thing of murder. Like at the beginning, at the very beginning, are two uh Men who commit the murder, they're talking about just nonsense, like how they're superior to other people. Just like real dumb, douchey talk, right? <laughs> yes. But then they start talking to the maid and they're talking about stuff like the dinner party. And it's like they they think this over here is real, where they're committing murder. They think this is what's important. But really, what's important is this dinner party. It's like you're inviting your friends over. Just have a good time. There's no need to do weird stuff like murder. Like, you figured it out. You got a good little group of friends. <laughs> hang out and enjoy each other. But that's not enough for them because they're just fucking weirdos. So they have to do the Im- weird thing of murder because they're just weirdos.
2: You know, it's weird.
0: It it was a big old art to them. And as we learned from the sticky bandits or the wet bandits in Home Alone, the art of the crime can sometimes be your undoing. And I think that Brandon's artistic approach uh, was his own undoing. And I think that Philip was relieved to have been caught. I actually really do. Sure. I don't think that he could have gone past tonight, quite frankly. I think that he, he just couldn't. He would have turned himself in or whatever. Brandon, I think he would have kept... Push Even if Brandon wasn't caught that night, I guarantee you he would have done exactly kind of what the real life case was and put theories out there or or been falsely and talked to journalists and said stuff that, that inevitably would have caught him in trouble. So I think that the fate would have happened regardless. And in a weird way, it was a little bit of a mercy to have Rupert.
1: Well, and the reason he invited them was probably to get caught in the first place.
0: That would have been the biggest hurdle and they wanted, to, and he probably wanted to get it out of the way first. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, and I, I think we're coming to the end. So I want to end on one message. And this is kind of my message of life as I think the problem with these two guys is they think they're somehow different than other people. They, they do. They think they're above other people. So if you want to start like acting different because you think you're different, relax. Take a second. Maybe get a hobby, make some friends. Just don't do anything weird. Like murder or even less weird. Like being like a catfish on Tinder. Don't do anything. Just be cool. <laughs> Just keep it cool and chill.
0: I I I think I speak for all of us when we say that we all vehemently look down upon murder and we do not think it is a good thing so as we wrap up our final thoughts did we forget anything do you two have any closing thoughts on the film anything that we didn't mention or said in our previous recording that we didn't bring up and finally what are the ratings that we have for this movie Mm -hmm. and would you recommend it to a friend
2: no there's nothing that I really have to discuss other than... I think it's a really good movie. Um, I think it's definitely up there for one of my favorite old movies now because I've actually never seen it before. Ah! This marked this off my checklist, but I will say I think it was great. I would definitely recommend it to a friend. Uh, I thought it was a good length. I think they covered everything they needed to cover. I thought it was suspenseful. I thought it was creative. I thought it was really good. So, rating... Uh, I think I think for my rating, I'm going to give it a seven, seven and a half because I think it's great. But I'm going to reserve the higher ratings for movies that are really remarkable that really stand out for me. Nice. Nice. Uh, Ben, what are your last
0: thoughts on this gem of a film?
1: I guess I have no more takes on the movie. My only thought is that it was great. I loved it. I think it's an incredible message. I loved all the characters. And I would give it a 10 out of 10. Would recommend to a friend. I wouldn't change one single thing. The, it, was, it was genius. I just think it's a, a great message, especially for how self-absorbed you introduced introduce me as a Gen Z member. <laughs> it's especially great for how se- is- self-absorbed people my age are. You're not special. Don't commit murder. Just be cool. Okay? Just keep it cool don't do murder. Great movie. would recommend to everyone.
0: Yes. Yes. We definitely endorse the message of don't commit murder. That would be (laughs) something we believe in. Be cool. Keep it cool. Yes. There's a lot more intelligent things you can do with your brain power.
1: (laughs) Woodshop, for example, (laughs) be nice to your housekeeper. Another good example. But Emma, what did you think of the movie? What was your reading?
0: I have seen this movie before and I really liked it the first time I watched it. It's been actually quite a few years since I've seen it. So I am so happy when someone suggested that we watch it. And I was even more happy when it won our Instagram and Twitter poll. And I have to say, looking at it now, I feel like I even more... more so, enjoy the philosophical elements. I feel like I am more familiar with astrology now, so I get the humor in that more. I feel <laughs> like I, yeah. uh, I, I feel like I even understand Hitchcock more than maybe when I saw it for the first time. So altogether, I think that this is a beautiful intellectual film. It's one to pay attention to. It's also pretty short. It's only eighty two minutes. So I think if you're trying to <laughs> Rope someone into watching it. I think,
2: <laughs> I think
0: that the time frame is well worth any and everyone's while because you don't have to commit too much to it, and it's it's just it's good. It's just really good. The acting is phenomenal. The writing probably is some of my favorites. The structurally, it works really well with the tension of Alfred Hitchcock's style, um, his camera preferences, and everything. So I would give this, and again, I, I tend to rate Hitchcock's films a little higher because I really do uh, hold his film in pretty high regard. Uh, I would put this maybe at a 7.9 to an 8.2 range.
1: That's outrageous. This movie is a 10 out of 10.
2: <laughs> Everyone's entitled so to their good. own ratings, Ben. This movie,
1: okay, final thought. This movie is so good. It's absolutely fantastic. You'll be on the edge of your seat the whole time.
0: You heard it here, folks, from Ben himself. This is the movie you don't want to miss. So, Ben, I can already tell you that, okay, you guys, we're going to watch Psycho with Ben for the first time this weekend. We will keep you posted with some sort of update on what Ben thinks about Psycho. I don't know how or where, but we will. And I, I can't wait to watch even more old movies and specifically Hitchcock's with you, Ben. I really can't wait to see your is reaction.
1: Psycho scary? I believe it's scary, correct?
0: It's more, it's like light. Like it's like very thriller. Like- I would
2: say it's scary and suspenseful.
0: It's like very yeah. light horror. Nothing I'm that you would... will,
2: I'm sure I will love it then,
0: if there's yeah. suspense. Very
1: suspenseful. are there elements of class
0: kind of money's involved money's a big part of it It actually is (laughs) all right old soul family isabel where can they find us
2: uh well on instagram they can find us at old soul movie podcast on twitter they can find us at old soul pod and on facebook they can find us at the old soul movie podcast
0: excellent excellent we don't have a tiktok yet but who knows? I want to thank Ben and Isabella (laughs) so much for being troopers because recording this and getting this episode out was quite a process. It has been just like Sisyphus climbing up that mountain with his rock. Uh, That's what the earlier recording felt like. And to, to finally be at the finishing line here, the three of us finally having been able to have one succinct session with it. I am so happy we were able to share all of our thoughts. We
2: will see you next time. And yeah, stay tuned.